Any other kids for Children's Church? It's all girls club today. There's not one boy among you to go brave it out with seven. Yeah, not going to happen, huh? Okay. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bible to the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 5. So for the last uh, couple of weeks, we uh, uh, had a, a guest preacher while we were in Pittsburgh, and then last week we had our missions emphasis uh, Sunday, which I just want to say for me was very encouraging uh, to think about the reach of our church. Um, and I, I believe that barely what we looked at last week barely covers, uh, barely scratches the surface of the reach of our church, uh, because we obviously have a number of things that go on here in our community. Uh, we, uh, we didn't uh, spend any time last week talking about um, our a trip to Kentucky back in December, but uh, many of you were a part of that trip and uh, reaching out in that community and then all the other things we've been doing. And I just want to say that, uh, you know, as your pastor, that really warms my heart to see an interest uh, that people have uh, in going uh, throughout, uh, throughout the world. Um, I do want to uh, tell you that after our... Uh, time last week and got to spend some time with my, my friend David and his family. Um, our goal is to uh, offer a trip next summer uh, to Vienna, uh, Austria. So while you may see pictures from my trips to Thailand and El Salvador being these uh, places out in the middle of nowhere, um, I want to promise you that any trip to Vienna will not be the middle of nowhere. Uh, I'm fairly certain there's not much of that uh, in Austria. Uh, you saw the video um, uh, of, of the sights and sounds that you can see there. And so uh, be thinking about that. We don't have a date yet or cost or anything. It's very preliminary, but uh, the goal is to, to be going there uh, next summer and uh, helping out. One of the churches in that area uh, does camps for people who are wanting to learn English. Uh, well, the, the good news is that most of you speak a certain amount of English, and uh, uh, we can probably work on some of the things you don't know or some of the things that you might color in a different way than might be appropriate uh, to teach someone. Um, some of our vernacular here in the South is maybe not what we want to transfer to other folks. I would hate to think that the people in Vienna are speaking um, our exact dialect of English. That may not be best for their future endeavors. Uh, but um, consider that and think about how you might be able to participate in that, and that'll be coming up next summer. Uh, also, uh, right after Christmas this year, uh, we'll be returning to El Salvador and uh, working on uh, finalizing the details for that trip, um, but uh, if you have any interest in that, we'll be leaving the day after Christmas and then returning before school starts back, and so uh, um, it's a, it'll be a good trip uh, right at a week, and uh, uh, the cost on that will not be too expensive. So if you're interested in either one of those, uh, make sure you see me, shoot me an email, send me a text, and just let me know that you're interested so that I can begin uh, kind of forming those things together. Now, if a hundred of you show up wanting to go to Vienna, um, obviously we'll have to make some adjustments there. And do know that it is, there's only one day of sightseeing on my mission trips normally, uh, unless we go to Pittsburgh, and sometimes we have to do more than that. Uh, but uh, it will be a lot of work involved, uh, but it is a beautiful city and a great place to minister, and so um, just be thinking about that. We pick up this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 5, where we left off uh, three weeks ago, and we were journeying through uh, a portion of Deuteronomy together, and then more specifically, over the last couple of weeks, we have been looking at uh, the Ten Commandments, and they are, uh, where they are repeated here in the book of Deuteronomy. And so we have looked at the first seven, and uh, today we will look at the final three as we pick up in Deuteronomy chapter 5, beginning in verse 19. I want to invite you to stand with me this morning in reverence to God's Word as we read together. Deuteronomy chapter 5, beginning in verse 19. 
The Bible says, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. You may be seated. The overarching theme of this sermon series that we began a number of weeks ago in the book of Deuteronomy and what will take us through the end of the summer is that we are living ourselves today in a strange land. A land that does not reflect our values. A place that does not hold to the same standards that we do. And so as we find ourselves in this place in our time in history where we do not live in a place that we feel like reflects who we are or what we believe, it is appropriate then for us to come here to the book of Deuteronomy and consider what it was like for the people of God as they were making their way into the promised land to be dwelling in and living in a place that was strange to them. A, a place where the values of the people there were much different than our own. We today understand that we live in such a place, and so by looking at these people and, and this teaching from God's Word in the book of Deuteronomy, we are able, I think, to understand better how we are to live well in a land that is so strange. Specifically, as we have been looking at these Ten Commandments, we have seen essential commands for those who are delivered from bondage. We have seen commands that have to do with our relationship with God and how we interact with Him and the place that He is to occupy in our life. And then the relationship that we are to have with others whether it be our parents and the command to honor them, whether it is in our relationship with people who we have varying degrees of contact with when it comes to our not murdering others and not committing adultery. And then we come to these today, and they continue to express the way that we are to interact with other people. God has specific commands in how we express ourselves to others and how we relate to others. And then also in these today, it, it goes further than just simply those interactions, but it, it talks about the things that we have and the things that we say about other people. These commands are fairly straightforward and yet they are so important for us today because they are things that have been lessened in our society. The first thing we see here when we think about essential commands of those who have been delivered from bondage, we, we see first that people who are delivered, delivered people, do not steal. And he says this very plainly, does he not? And you shall not steal. Well, what does it mean to steal? Well, it's, it's pretty straightforward, right? I mean, we, we could express that definition fairly easily. I think most of our children would be able to do that as well, though they and we may have a hard time following this command, I, I think we would at least know what it means, right? When you steal something that's taking something that doesn't belong to you and, and taking it for your own, taking it for your own use. Stealing is a, a huge problem in our society, not only when we think about people going out and they break into someone's house and they take things that are not their own, but that's just kind of how our society operates, right? It's just things are stolen all the time. We often in our culture, we have, we have people that we idolize who steal, correct? If you think about the the fable, the fairy tale, if you will, of, of Robin Hood, which is expressed in so many 
different ways. What did, what did he do? He went and he stole things, right? He robbed from the rich to give to the who? The poor, right? And, and some people try to still take that on today, correct? I mean, that's what happens. Various people think they're trying to do that. Sometimes we, we see the government, we, we say they're trying to, to do that, but that's become a big thing, right? To, to take and to give. But many people still, and they just take for themselves. And the Bible is expressly forbidding that for us who are in Christ. Our responsibility when it comes to this is to have what is ours and make sure that when other people have things that it belongs to them and that we don't try to take it for ourselves. We, we see this happen in our culture with intellectual property. We see this happen with physical property. People going and they, they take things. Why is this such a, a problem? I mean, surely, may, you know, obviously, maybe you would have the, the power to go in and take something at someone else, and they couldn't do anything about it. Maybe you're just really gifted at, at stealing things. You know, you've seen these people who can pick pockets of somebody walking down the street, and, and so they've, they've really gotten good at, at stealing. Why is this so bad? Well, as a Christian, we understand that everything that we have and that everything that is belongs to God. Everything that exists belongs to Him. Whether it's the nicest car or the crummiest car. The nicest house, the worst house. The nicest piece of land, the worst piece of land. It all belongs to God, right? The beautiful mountains, the beaches, it all belongs to God. Everything is, is His. And so when God owns everything, then He gives to us the things that he wants us to have. He distributes to us what we need. He puts it into our possession, sometimes for a long period of time, sometimes for a short period of time, but he, he does that and gives to us what we need when we need it. That's a Christian view of the world. And so when we decide that we need to steal something, through whatever manner we use to steal it, because there are ways that you can legally steal things, right? You can maneuver and con the system and whatever. When we decide that we need to steal something, what we do is say to God, you know, God, what you have given me, what you have offered to me is, well, simply not enough. It's simply not adequate. I, I, I think I need to have more. God, I, I know you've given me certain things and you have, you have uh, distributed certain things to me in my life, but God, frankly, it's just not enough. God, I, 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 think, I, I think I should have more. And so what I'm going to do, God, is I'm going to go and I'm going to steal so that I can have these things that you have not given me. That's where we disobey God in stealing. Because we decide in our heart that, that God has simply not given us enough. And see, stealing is wrong. Whether you're poor, whether you're rich, it's, it's wrong. God has simply told us not to steal. And He doesn't give us any caveat here. He doesn't give us any clarity here. So however it is that a person decides to steal, whether it is simply breaking into someone's house and taking things, or whether it is using their authority to get things that should not be theirs, they are stealing, and God does not like that. In fact, God commands us, if we are people who have been delivered from bondage, we shall not steal. Now friends, here's one of the realities for Christians, because I think, again, it's like some of these. We can read over it, and we can go, well... I don't have a problem with that one. So I'm okay. I can move on to the next one. I don't have a problem with that one. But the reality is that many Christians steal all the time. Again, they take things that aren't theirs. And, and sometimes, you know who we steal from? It's from God. Sometimes people steal from God. You, you realize this? The Bible's very plain about it. Again, it, it all belongs to him. And so the big question becomes not, 
not what should we do with all this stuff we've been given, but, but how much has God even called us to keep? And if we keep more than God has called us to keep, then guess what? We're stealing. So you notice here, and you can see this throughout the Bible, do you notice that there's no one that I'm aware of in the Bible who is told that they do not have to return a portion of what they have to God? Do you, you realize this? Maybe there is. Maybe there's someone I've missed. If there is, I, by all means, find it, come by, and show it to me this week. And I'll tell you, you're right. I'm not too proud to do that. But I'm fairly certain it's not there. And so if, if God has entrusted us with certain things, but told us, okay, I want you to use these for my kingdom and for my glory, and we don't do it, guess what? We've got something in our possession that doesn't belong to us. And what's that called? Go find a deputy this afternoon and ask him, Mr. Deputy, if I have something in my possession that doesn't belong to me and belongs to someone else, what have I done? Steal, right? You stole it. So this morning, if you have something that doesn't belong to you, you stole it from someone. I'm not talking about you rented a movie from Redbox last night and it's not 9 o'clock yet and you haven't returned it. But if you have something in your possession and somebody else is looking for it because it belongs to them, you've stole it. And friends, Christians are most guilty about this not when it comes to taking things from the person that lives next to them, not when it comes to stealing money from their bank, but it comes from stealing money from God, stealing time from God, stealing their talents from God because people do that all the time, correct? If everything that you have has come from God and He has called you to give a portion of it back to Him, if you keep that, have you not stolen from God? And so when we look at this passage, when we think about this command, thou shalt not steal. That's how most of you grew up hearing it, right? It's a little different in my translation, and you shall not steal. But, but if we want to go King James for a minute, thou shall not steal steal shouldn't the first person the first institution the first thing we be concerned about stealing from not be our neighbor because we're unlikely to break into his house and take his stuff at least i hope you are but shouldn't it be in our relationship with god where we are so often prone to stealing things that do not belong to us god entrusts us with an income and we still it from him instead of giving back the portion that he says God gives us a great talent to use for his kingdom and we steal it because we do not give it to him and his use God gives us time a limited amount of time on this earth a limited amount of time in which we can do the things he has called us to do and instead of being obedient to those things we steal time from God and do not give it to him who so richly deserves it. See, so many Christians will read through these Ten Commandments, and there's a couple hiccups that they can work on, but they don't stop here because they think, well, I don't have a problem. I don't go into Walmart and grab something off the shelf and stick it in my pocket. I hope you don't. Unfortunately, there are many people that do, but, but most Christians aren't going to be doing that. When you're filling out your taxes, you do it begrudgingly because you think the government doesn't need this money, the government will not use this money wisely, both things are true. But the Bible says you got to pay your taxes. you got to pay them accurately. But I don't think most Christians are cheating on their taxes. I think if we want to get the heart to the heart of this command for the people of God, it is the fact that we so often steal from God. We wouldn't steal from our bank, from the government, or our neighbor, but we will steal from God in a heartbeat and not think anything about it. How sad is that? They figure statistically that in the evangelical church, people give about 2% of their income to God. That sounds like thievery to me. That sounds like stealing. 
Most people give nothing. That's stealing from God. So maybe before we start thinking about all these other things, I'm not taking from my neighbor, I'm not stealing from Walmart, maybe we start with the reality that if, if, if we're willing to steal from God, we're willing to do a whole lot of other things deep down that we say we're not. If we're willing to steal from God when it comes to our finances and our time and the talents that God has given us, if we're willing to steal in that area, we can't be far from stealing from our bank. We can't be that far from being tempted to steal from Walmart or cheat on our taxes. We can't be that far from there if we willingly and easily steal from God. If you think about your life for a moment, could it be that there are places where you have robbed God? His command is simple. And people who are delivered from bondage are not people who steal. If we recognize that God has delivered us from the bondage of our sin, why would we not willingly give Him everything that we have? It belongs to Him in the first place. Why would we try to withhold it when I was in Pittsburgh, I was asked to teach the adult discipleship group that meets on Wednesday nights, and they were going through the book of Acts, and they'd come to the end of chapter 4, going, going into the beginning of chapter 5, and at this time, the church has all come together, and they have, the Bible says, all things in common. They were taking care of each other's needs and providing for each other as anyone had a need that they really just couldn't meet on their own. And so we're presented then in the end of chapter 4 with a guy named Barnabas who, who you recognize that name from the New Testament. And he sold some land and he came and he presented all the, the money for it at the apostles' feet. And, and again, he goes on from there to be a great leader in the church. But then at the beginning of chapter 5, there, we're introduced to a husband and wife named Ananias and Sapphira. And they also sell a piece of property Weren't, weren't compelled to do so, weren't ordered to do so. It was their own choosing. But they did so in telling people, okay, we're going to give this over. That's what you can understand from the text. We're, gonna, we're, we're joining in with everyone else. There's like this line of people who are selling property and giving all the money to uh, the early church. And so right after, here comes Barnabas. He does that exact thing. And then here comes Ananias and Sapphira. And they walk in and they gave just some. We don't know how much. They may have given more than Barnabas. We, we, don't, we don't know how much it was. But, but you know, here comes Ananias. He presents the money, and then he does what? He's congratulated by the apostles, right? No, he dies. Why? Because he had stolen from God. No one told him he had to sell that land. No one told him he had to give even all the money away. But when he acted like he did, when he presented himself as if he was being obedient to God in this act, he struck dead. His wife comes in a few hours later, and she's given the opportunity to, to say, you know what, we, we have cheated God. But she lies about it. She lies about stealing from God. And what happens? She falls down dead as well. Why do I tell you that? Because God takes this seriously. He takes stealing from others seriously. But He also takes stealing from Him seriously. And again, I would remind you that we cannot be very far from stealing physical things in this world from other people if we willingly steal from God and it doesn't bother us at all. Delivered people do not steal. Second thing, we see here a second essential command for those who have been delivered from bondage. He says in verse 20, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. We're talking about stealing. Now we're talking about lying. He says you, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You, shouldn't, you, you won't lie. You won't lie against your neighbor. You won't lie about something they have done. Now, why would you do this? Why does anybody lie? I mean, go back and look in the book of Genesis in chapter 3, and we see, 
we see the fall of humanity and God, he, he confronts Adam and Adam's like, well, it was, I wasn't responsible. It was this woman. This woman you gave me, it was her. She did it. And everyone's like, wait, 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 it, it wasn't me. I mean, I'm not responsible. It was, it was the serpent. The serpent did it. He's crafty. He's sly. He got me to, to fall into temptation. Whatever. It's nothing but lies, right? Our, our world is, is so full of lies. I mean, it, it is where we, if you watch television, it's, it's where, it seems to be where the bulk of the comedy even comes from is, is lying and, and trying to get yourself out of lies. And, and entire shows and entire episodes of shows are built on a lie and, and how the lie has to be furthered and twisted so that the person can continue on and try to get out of the lie and out of the situation that lying has put themselves in. And so here, as he's going through these, do not murder, do not commit adultery. He says, do not steal, and then do not bear false witness. Do not lie about your neighbor. You remember now, as Moses has set up this, the Ten Commandments, as he, has, as he has gotten them from God, as he's begun to put to, in place a system of government, Remember, the testimony of witnesses is how people are convicted. You know, now we can have a crime and there can be no witnesses, but someone can be convicted because we've got the use of fingerprints, we've got DNA. You know, you can, you can find those things that, that attach to a person. But then, if, if a murder was committed and there was no evidence, the, the only thing you had to go on was, were witnesses. And so, to then walk in and bear false witness would be to mess up the entire judicial system. We know now that when you put witnesses on the stand, their stories change. If, if an event were to occur even on this stage this morning, and all of you were called to the police station, and you began to uh, tell what had happened, all of you would have different stories about the same event. You would all see it from different angles, you would all be bringing your own experiences uh, in life to the table, if it would, there would be, no matter what the event was, some of you might think that it was more justified than the other. Some of you would, would see it in different ways based on who you are. But to go in and lie, so everyone in the room says that I fell off the stage, and one person says it didn't happen. I was there, I saw it, it simply did not happen. He did not fall off the stage, nothing like that happened. It was completely normal. We would know what? That, that you were the liar, correct? A hundred people had seen it happen and they said it happened and they testified that it happened and, and you lied about it. Even in our legal system, there are consequences if they find out that you lie, or at least there's supposed to be consequences, if they find out that you lied. To the police, you lied to the judge. There's supposed to be consequences for that. But again, it goes further than simply that. Because lying is a destructive force. Lying is destructive to churches, to families, to institutions. Lying will not, lying will not further agendas. Lying will not complete things that people want to get done. Lying is simply not beneficial, or at least it should not be. I think about the, again, if we want to think about fables, fairy tales, whatever stories, we think about the little boy who cried wolf. You, you know this. And, of course, the American cleaned-up, sanitized version is he, he keeps lying about the wolf and eventually... At the end, right, the, the sheep comes, I mean, the, the, the wolf comes and eats his sheep because at the end, he's cried wolf so many times when there was no wolf that, that no one believes him. Now, if I remember correctly, the actual version of that is the end of it, it's not the little boy's sheep that gets eaten, it's the little boy himself. 
he's standing on the hill and he yells wolf wolf and the townspeople come and there is no wolf and he gets a big laugh about it but but the final time he's standing there and the wolf does come and he he lies I mean, sorry, he tells the truth this time. He yells, wolf, wolf, but he's lied so many times that no one believes him. They do not come, and the consequences for his lying is his own death. That is an accurate representation of what lying does. Lying destroys. So here, if we think about our neighbor, if we bear false witness about him, let's say before the court, then he goes to jail for something he did not do. Maybe in mind here is the idea that if I I lie about my neighbor, if I bear false witness about him and he goes to jail, I can take what was his, right? I can take his land. That would make perfect sense leading into the 10th commandment that we'll look at in just a moment. You lie to get someone in trouble. You lie to to mess up their life, to destroy who they are. Your, Your lies pile up and eventually it destroys them. But ultimately, lying will destroy you. We lie to our boss about why we're late. We lie to our kids or kids lie to their parents about this or that. And, and what does it do? It ultimately destroys them. It can easily destroy the one we are lying about, the one we are lying to, but it also destroys us. See, lying is very difficult to keep up. That's why it's humorous to put it on television, or at least people think it's humorous, because because one lie begets another, begets another, and, and eventually you can't keep all of the lying straight. It's one of the things where if you see some of these dramas on television, again, they'll use the lies and eventually a good detective will sort through them and figure out who in the story has been lying. And the hope is that ultimately the person who is innocent is vindicated of whatever they have been accused of. A delivered person does not bear false witness because we have no need to. We have no need, if we have been delivered by Christ, to bear false witness against our neighbor. We have no need to lie about them. We have no need to lie to them. We have only need to be honest to them about ourselves, about whatever situation we are talking about or engaging in. We we need only to be honest to them to please the Lord. Now, the sad thing that the church has done is we have begun, as the church, to bear false witness to our neighbors about their reality. We have begun, as the church, how how sad it is that we have chosen to break this command when it comes to speaking to our neighbors about their reality. We, we have every reason in the world not to lie to them. And yet so often as the church, we have decided to lie to them. So I want to promise you that I believe for all of us, lying is a problem we have to deal with, we have to fight against in our individual lives. I, I believe as a church, we also have to fight against lying. We have to fight against bearing false witness to our neighbors. Because see, so many churches have told their neighbors that their neighbors are okay, that everyone is okay, that everyone is all right. We have begun to minimize the reality of these commandments and God's Word in general when it comes to our neighbors and who they are. We bear false witness to them when we tell them that sin doesn't matter. How ironic that we commit a sin when we tell people that their sin, it doesn't matter. When we bear false witness to them that they're okay however they are, that they're okay living in their sin, that they're okay living in their separation from God. How, how sad it is that we have decided to tell them that there is no sin and there are no consequences for sin 
And by doing so, we have sinned against them. We sin against others when we lie to them in any capacity. When we lie to them in a way to manipulate them, we are, yes, doing something that is very wrong, and we are doing something that is very sinful. But friends, at the same time, when we lie to them to make them feel better, we are also sinning against them. That does not do them any favor. It does not do them any benefit when we lie to them about their spiritual condition. Friends, lying of any capacity is wrong. We should not lie. Now, in our Christian worldview and ethics small group that we've been having on Tuesday nights, early on we talked about some of these things. And so the question becomes, is every lie always wrong? We need to realize every lie is always lying. Was it a sin for the Germans who were protecting Jews hidden in their house to lie? I don't think it was a sin. It was still a lie. Why were they having to lie? Because of the reality of sin in the world. So if you ever come to me and can have something as noble as that and ask if, if it's all right, I'll give you a pass on that one. You can deal with it when you and God talk later. But friends, I don't know of anyone in this room who has lied in a noble manner as protecting others' lives. If you do that, we can have a discussion. But friends, I think sometimes we try to justify our lying because we think it's better than telling the truth. We, we justify our lying. We, we justify our bearing false witness about someone else because we think that's it's better. It's better than, than, than the truth. It'll make people more comfortable. It'll make people uh, uh, more accepting. Friends, that's not how God works. God bears truth about us in the Word of God. He, 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 in His Word, He bears the truth about us. He talks to us about our sinful condition. He talks about us about our need for a Savior. He, he is truthful and honest about us, and He is truthful and honest about Himself. And we have that responsibility too. We need to be about the truth, and we need to be people of the truth. We do not need to make a mockery of God by lying and bearing false witness, by telling our neighbor that he or she is okay when in the reality they are not, by lying to them about their need for a Savior, by lying in general. A person who has been delivered will not bear false witness against their neighbor. Whether we are in court under oath, having placed our hand on the Bible, giving testimony, or whether we're in our general everyday life. We need to be people of the truth and trust that God, as the God of truth, and Christ as the incarnation of truth, is sufficient. Even if that causes us great problems if it causes us great harm, if it causes us to be unpopular among our neighbors, let that be okay for us as long as we've been willing to be people of the truth. The third thing. He says, you shall not steal and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And then in verse 21, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. He says you'll not covet, you'll not desire to have something that isn't yours. You'll not covet, whether it's your neighbor's wife, or his house, or his servants, or his stuff. 
you're not to do it. If you have been delivered from bondage, you cannot spend your life wanting what someone else has. You just can't spend your life that way. If you do spend your life that way, what you're saying is, God, again, I appreciate what you've given me, but you know, it's just not adequate. I'm accustomed to a certain a style of living. I'm accustomed to having certain things, and God, you know, you're just not, you're just not there. You're just not giving me enough stuff. What I'd really like to have is John's stuff, or Bob's stuff, or Sam, whoever. Whatever your neighbor's name is. Whatever your buddy at work's name is. I'd just like to, if I I only had what he has, you know, I'd be happy. God, I would serve you more fully, whatever the garbage we make up is. God says, no, no, you're not going to spend your life thinking, you know, if I only had his wife, if I only had his family, if I only had his house, if I only had this, if I only had that. The great irony of that is, as a person, none of us in this room are wealthy. Now, if you compare us to the rest of the world, we're all very wealthy. If you compare us to our own country, we're not. You know, we're mostly middle class folks. So if you turn on the television and you watch all of these people, and you think about how messed up their lives really are, why would you want that? Like, I don't understand why you would want to be like some of these people. It just doesn't make sense. Logically, it doesn't make sense. We see all the stuff they have, yes, but you see their multitude of problems, their constant problems. So many of them struggle with drug abuse, with alcohol abuse. They struggle with relationships that are destroyed over and over and over again. They battle with all types of depression. Many of them, their lives end early because they just can't handle success or fame or whatever it is. But people sit around and think, man, if I just had that. You know, if I just had a billion dollars. If I had a billion dollars. It used to be a million dollars, but we all know a million dollars, that won't cut it these days. It's just not sufficient. But if I had a billion dollars, if I had Bill Gates money, if I had Donald Trump money, I would be, you know, if I had Donald Trump money, I would have all kinds of money. I could go stay in any city, stay on my own skyscraper in my own penthouse that had my name on it. And yet, as Christians, we're forbidden from having that view. We're forbidden from having the view that I need more stuff. Because when we have that view, what we're doing is say, God, God, you're just not sufficient. Now, we all want to sing that, you know, your, your, your grace is sufficient for me. We, we want to say that, but, but when we start to examine our heart, do we go, man, I, if I only had that? I can do that as a preacher, right? You know, if I was pastoring one of these big churches, don't have to deal with some of the stuff I have to deal with at a little church. Those preachers at those big churches, they guarantee they've never had to change a light bulb or they've never had to unclog a toilet, you know. These are real struggles, folks. They really happen here. They've never had to deal with two daycare workers who just can't get along and you're going to have to do something about it. They, they, that's, that's a staff member's job. They push that off to the third administrative assistant or the fourth associate pastor. You know, I wouldn't have to deal with some of those problems. If only. I look at some of these guys on television and they're heretics. But man, being a heretic means a big house and a fancy car television program, all you got to do is be a heretic. I mean, some of you aren't even convinced I'm not one anyway, so, I mean, it's not that far. 
I know some of you are probably heretics, so I mean, it's not, you know, y'all might like it. I could say some more heretical things. I could encourage you to plant more seeds into the ministry called my Rolls Royce. But uh, why am I thinking about that? Is that is that a godly thought put in my mind if I am watching television and jealous of a preacher? People say all the time, you know, these athletes shouldn't be making that much money. You getting a little covetous, are you? Getting a little desirous of their stuff? Because I bet whatever your job is, somebody wanted to sign you to a six-year, $120 million contract, you'd be cutting backflips. We would too, especially if you're a tither. That's $12 million over six years. That's $500,000 a year. That's twice our budget just from you. Now, you wouldn't give it because you'd have other excuses, I'm sure, but you're your agent or whatever. You're telling me today that if whatever you're good at, they said six years, $120 million contract, you wouldn't be cutting flips? I would be. Y'all want to offer me a six-year, $120 million contract to preach? These sermons will be longer and better, I promise. I'll have more time to study because I'll hire my own staff, my butler, my maid, you know, and we could get some church staff too. Isn't that us thinking not, God, thank you for what you've given me. God, thank you that I live in the greatest country in the world. God, thank you that I have a place to lay my head. God, thank you that I've got air conditioning. God, thank you that I've got a car that gets me where I'm going to go. God, thank you that there's food on my table. Or is that, God, I wish I had what someone else had? Which one is it? Because it's not the first one. It's not an attitude of gratefulness that says, God, I wish I had what my neighbor had. God, God I, I wish, listen, preachers do that in ministry. Man, you know, this guy's being successful, and, and I know he can't put two sentences together, and I know he doesn't have any education. God, how's that? You know, why can't I have that? Don't you do that in your job? Somebody gets the promotion, and you go, man, you know, I'm smarter than they are. He's dumber than a brick wall. How did he get that? How did he get that? Who, who would trust him with that kind of responsibility? I wouldn't trust him to walk my dog. I wouldn't trust him to take out my garbage. Why did they give him the raise? Why did they give him the promotion? Isn't that how we operate? Isn't that what we do? I, I thought it was funny. You want to talk about millionaires doing this. When the NBA was doing new contracts and some of those guys were making ridiculous money. Guys I've never heard of making $100 million. And these guys in the NFL that make a lot less, you know, they only make six or seven million a year instead of 20. And they're like, man, we should have been in the NBA. And I'm thinking, you, you've made 50 or 60 million over the life of your playing. You'll retire at 35 and don't have to do anything for the rest of your life. But you see what it is? See, it's never enough. Money and stuff is never enough because you look at that and go, Wow, man, 20 million. Then, then the baseball guys over here are like, yeah, I got 250 million over 10 years on my contract. You, you guys got nothing. It's like, these are mind-blowing numbers, and yet what you realize is that it's never enough. It's never going to be enough. No matter how much money you have, no matter how much stuff you have, your heart is always going to be pulled toward wanting more. How do we prevent that? Because here, he says that you are to not covet. If you are delivered from bondage, do not covet other people's stuff. We have to, as Christians, decide that Christ is enough. Until we commit in our heart and in the way that we live that Christ is enough, then we're always going to covet other people's things. Until we decide that we are not going to steal from God, we're not going to lie to try to get more stuff. You notice those two come right before. How do we do that? We, in all of these, we have to decide that Christ is enough. That what we have been allotted by God for this period of time that we are on earth is sufficient. 
Because, friends, every time you want to think that you don't have anything, if you ever get to that point where you think that you are just the, in the worst situation in the world, you have nothing, I will personally pay for your plane ticket to go with me to a place where they have nothing. Because we have been greatly blessed. The church is at its richest point in history. The accumulated wealth of all the people in evangelical churches in this country is in the trillions of dollars. We have all that we need. But we will never be able to accept that fact until we commit to ourselves that Christ is enough. He has delivered us from the bondage of sin. He has delivered us from our captivity and darkness. And we must therefore become convinced that He is sufficient for our needs. Because if not, friends, we're always going to want more. And you're never going to get it. You're not. There's never going to be enough. You could go today and play the lottery, which would be stupid on your part, but you could do it. You go play the lottery, waste your money, be stupid, and you win. So let's say you win, and you win the $500 million, and everybody's like, oh, look, they won $500 million, and then all of a sudden you realize it's only $300 million, and then they take taxes, so now you're down to $150 million. That was depressing, wasn't it? Then you figure out that you've got more family members than you thought, and you've got a bunch of crazy cousins, and one of them owns an investment firm, and you put it all with him, and he's going to win it all. And then a year or two from now, you come back in, and you sit on the front row. It's like, hey, it's good to see you. You know, we missed that tithe check. That would have been a much better investment than the one you made, and you're sitting right here, and you got nothing again. And that's the story, isn't it? Why? Because it wasn't enough. And you try to buy things and do things and, and, and all this and all this to make it to, to fill some void. And it's because Christ wasn't enough for you. And listen, I'm not going to lie. There's days when it's not enough. And there's days when, when I do not say in my heart, Christ is sufficient. And, and I, I think I need to do this or I need to do that. And I, I got to do this or that. I got to try to have this or, or whatever. Because, because he's not enough. And I'm sure that for you, there are days like that as well, where, where in your heart, in your mind, in the way you're living, you do not commit that day that Christ will be enough. And you see that, that car, or you see that house, or that family, or that athlete, or that celebrity, you say, I wish I had that. Wouldn't it be so much easier? Have you ever done this? Have you ever won the lottery in your mind? Anybody ever done this? If you hadn't, it's a, it's a great trip, you know. I mean, it's just it's a great way to go to sleep at night or, or to just blow, you know, some time. So what would happen? So I'm glad that at the point I've gotten to, I would give 10% to the church, but you are not getting it all. I mean, I just want to be honest with that. I don't know if I can trust you with like $25 million Just That's a lot of responsibility. So there's some churches I know, and I'm going to pay off their debt. You know, that's my first move and I feel good in my daydream that that's my first move is to, to help out some churches and send some missionaries and but then I'm thinking of my car collection and it's going to be sweet you you guys are going to want to come hang at my house all the time when I win the lottery because my car collection is going to be awesome but then eventually you wake up right or you figure out oh yeah I need to be a responsible adult again and do something productive and stop having this daydream why do we do that? It's fun, right? I mean, it's, you know, kind of think, what, what could you do? What would you? But it's because our heart is drawn towards stuff. And even in that, that innocent daydream moment, which is not going to happen because I don't buy a lottery ticket, so I'm not going to win the lottery. I have a 0% chance, which is exactly the same as 250 million Americans, except for that one guy. Everybody thinks, oh, I'm going to be that one. You're not. I want to promise you, any of you ever win the $500 million lottery, I'll give you the rest of the money in my savings account. Because the church is going to give me a huge raise when you tithe anyways, right? I'm going to be living it up, so I'm not worried about that little minuscule amount in my bank account. 
It's not going to happen. Why do we do that? Because our heart is just pulled towards stuff. We, we, we're going to steal it. We're going to lie to get it. We're going to desire it. And God says, no, I'm going to be enough. Friends, next time that comes into your head, next time you're, 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 you're turning on the television and the guy signs the big contract or you see the people that live these lavish lifestyles, realize that for them, it's not enough. No matter how much money the Trumps or the Clintons have, it'll never be enough. No matter how much power they have, it'll, it'll never be sufficient for them. They're always going to want more. And that's been true of every person throughout history who has had all kinds of money and all kinds of power. They've always wanted more. But Christ is enough. He is sufficient to meet our needs. And God is telling the people here as they go into that strange land, you don't need more stuff because I'm going to be your God. I'm going to be your king. I'm going to give you what you need. And he's telling that to us this morning. If we have been delivered from bondage, the bondage of sin, the slavery of sin, he is enough for us. And so this morning, is the desire of your heart to have more things? Because it's, it's not going to be fulfilling. Let me promise you that. It's, it's not going to make you feel better. Or is He enough? Is He enough for you? Is, is what He has given you enough? Is the truth enough? Is, is your, your family, is that enough? Your house, is, is that enough? The car that you have, is that sufficient? Is that enough? Or, or is there always going to be a desire for something else? Christ is enough for us. If we have been delivered from bondage, He is enough. Have you committed yourself to that this morning? We bow your heads with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we have been able to come into your house and worship this morning. God, my prayer and my hope is that this morning we realize that you are sufficient for us, that we have need of nothing else. There is no need for us to go and to steal because we have what we need. There's no reason for us to lie, try to manipulate our way into something, because God, You're enough. Lord, there is no need this morning for us to covet. No need for us to covet anything that anyone else has, because, Lord, You're enough for us. God, I pray that as we all struggle with these sins, as we fight against them every day, God, that you would help us. You would deliver us from our wicked hearts. You would deliver us from, God, the sin that entangles us. God, that you would be our portion you would be the rock that we cling to. You would be, God, sufficient to meet our needs. Lord God, as we have this time of invitation, God, I pray that you would speak to hearts, that each person here would examine their heart. God, they would ask themselves if, God, if they are sufficient. God, they would ask themselves if you are enough or if they're trying to put other things there, they're trying to hold on to other things, God. God, help each one of us to ask if your grace, your love, and mercy is sufficient to meet our needs. God, have we committed ourselves to your sufficiency? God, if not, Lord, I pray that during this time you would speak to hearts. God, you would remove those things that are there that should not be. God, that you would take up residence in our heart and, God, in all things, remind us of how sufficient you are. Lord God, we thank you for who you are. God, we praise you for all the things that you're doing 
in our heart and in our life. And Lord, we pray these in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me this morning as we have this time of invitation. I just pray that you would respond. Is Christ sufficient for you? Are there other things that you have the desire to want, the desire to have that you just really want? And you, you, you think, you know what, my life is not going to be where it, where it could be, what it should be until I have those things. Friends, that, that's not what we're called. As Christians, we're, we're told that Christ is enough. That we don't steal and we don't lie and we don't covet because He's enough. We don't need something else. I pray this morning you would commit that in your heart. That He would be enough for you. And respond to His word as we sing this morning.